In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Jonas Gebhard about running an e-commerce business in Hong Kong. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 136. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow their e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Plusky, and I'm here today with Jonas Gebhard. Jonas is the founder of the Kauai Group, a company that he launched in 2004 in Finland. He's since moved to Hong Kong and has been running it there since. I asked him on the show today to chat about what are some of the benefits and difficulties running an e-commerce business in Hong Kong. So, hey, Jonas, how are you doing today? Fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Great to have you on the show. It's uh, where are you? So you're still currently the founder of the Kauai Group, right? Uh, yes, correct. All right, and you're not currently in Hong Kong, though, right? As of yeah, this moment, we are Corona ev- evacuees and currently in Finland. Okay, we flew here in uh, late late uh, January. Okay, so you're, but your home still is Japan, but you're uh, just kind of in and Finland. We, yeah, we live in. Hong Kong, but we have an apartment here in uh, Helsinki also. Okay, gotcha. And you're originally from Finland? Finland, yes. Okay. So I'm curious to kind of talk about the background of how you got started. And so first, actually, the Kauai Group. Um, I was looking through your products, but what exactly, how do you describe what you guys sell? Uh, we sell everything cute and Japanese. <laughs> so everything cute like uh, Hello Kitty and uh, characters like Hello Kitty and uh, everything pink, fluffy, nice, sparkly. Yep. Okay. And what markets do you sell into? Mostly North America and Europe. Okay. So you and you sell them and where is it? I mean, just a few questions here because this is a very different. Most folks are either in North America or Canada and you know, they're selling to their local market. But you are in, did you start the business when you were in Finland or in Japan? Yeah, we started about 15 years ago in Finland. So we had a few physical stores and, and then we sold. And sorry, Hong Kong, I meant. Fin- I should have said Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. So we sold from Finland to Finland. We imported the stuff to Europe and uh, it's just impossible to sell from Finland to any other countries. It's too expensive. Everything from shipping and labor and storage and all the fees. So then we moved the business to Hong Kong about 10 years ago. So now we are able to sell everywhere in the world and be on the same same uh, basic like cost structure as, as all our Chinese competitors and other Asian companies. So you're, you moved the business to Hong Kong, but I want to make sure I understand. So you moved the business to Hong Kong but the products now are being distributed from both Finland and Hong Kong and North America? Or where do they actually, where, where is it the distribution come from? We, we ship everything from Hong Kong. We have a warehouse okay. in Hong Kong and everything is shipped from there. So direct, like basically Hong Kong to North America and Hong Kong to Europe now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How long ago did you start this business? This one we started about 15 years ago. Okay. So 2004, if I remember correctly. So you basically started like the opposite, like the anti-dropshipping business. You, instead of doing dropshipping, you kind of went with the dropshipping. You kind of went there and you're shipping the other way now. Yeah, I don't know if there's, there was dropshipping even when we started, but uh, we have always had our own warehouse and own shipping because we have so many products, like maybe 5,000 SKUs. So we are not able to um, have a 3PL or 
or another company to handle those. Okay. So are you sourcing them? So I'm trying to understand. So you source them all locally in Hong Kong and Hong Kong and China? We buy from um, many countries, mostly Japan, but of course, some of the uh, like the custom products we make for ourselves are coming from China. And then we buy from Korea, Thailand. Okay. And then ship them all to the warehouse in Hong Kong and then distribute it. But you're taking orders from all over the world and just distributing to wherever, basically, North America, Europe. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad because the shipping from Southern China and Hong Kong is so cheap. We offer free shipping for every country, everywhere. Really? So it's basically, basically everything we ship, we offer free shipping. And we don't even carry any products that would be more than two kilos because then we would not be able to ship them for free. How do you do that? That seems that that's amazing. Actually, we have, we just have to calculate the shipping prices into the product prices. Uh, it's a uh, basically it's easy, but uh, easier for customers to see that uh, yeah, shipping is free. And then if they compare the product prices, our prices might be a little bit more expensive than some competitors, but still we offer free shipping. Today's episode is sponsored by drip. Drip is the world's first e-commerce CRM and a tool that I personally use for email marketing and automation. Now, if you're ever in an e-commerce store, you need to give Drip a try, and here's why. Drip offers one-click integrations for both Shopify and Magento. There's robust segmentation, personalization, and revenue dashboards to give you an overview of how your automation emails are performing. One of my favorite features of Drip is the Visual Workflow Builder. It gives you a super easy way to build out your automation world visually and see the entire process. It lets you get started quickly, but also build very complex automation rules. It's powerful, but also easy to learn, unlike a lot of email tools that offer the same type of automation. To get a demo of Drip today, you can go head over to drip.com slash BOE. That's drip.com slash BOE. Now, onto the show. So how did you first get into this? Like, were you in Finland at the time? You traveled to Hong Kong? Like, where, where did yeah. you start? And we traveled a lot in Asia, like uh, late 90s, early 2000. And everywhere we see the, pro the products what we sell now, we see them everywhere, but they were not available in Europe, at least. It's maybe some cute stuff for young girls, but nothing like Japanese style cute. It's very different from what we are very used to. So that's why we started that business first and then uh, slowly, slowly moved to online also because we started with a physical store so it's it was completely the other way around oh so you started it with a brick and so you had a brick and mortar in finland and you were just importing products yeah. wow okay yeah and not uh, not a good idea <laughs> yeah well i mean this was also in 2004 you said so slightly yeah. different i guess the tide was already changing at that point but yeah, and it's so diff so expensive to run an actual store with like a, in inside a shopping mall with all the mandatory opening times and. Yep. So when did you decide? So it started in two thousand four, but when you decide, okay, it's time to actually move, get rid of the brick and mortar, and then when did you decide to actually move to Hong Kong? Around the same time with the 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 economic downturn, two thousand eight we decided like we are going to close the physical stores and just focus on uh, e-commerce because then we could already see that e-commerce and if we could sell worldwide, it's going to be much different than selling to a small market of 5 million people. Okay. So moving to 2008. All right. So but what, 
how did you decide to move there? Because I mean, most people, I mean, I think one thing, right, is closing the physical location. I, I get that part. But all of a sudden, like moving, were you moving there for distribution reasons or just to be closer? To, I don't know, like to be in Asia itself? Like what was, what was kind of the thought process like? Uh, I always liked Hong Kong a lot. It's like a super nice city with like, and it's easy. Everything works in English. And then it's a logistics hub. So basically you can import every, from any country in the world or there are almost no restrictions, no taxes, no import fees, no duties, nothing. So we could use Hong Kong as a hub and be basically cheaper shipping from Hong Kong than if we would sell our Japanese products directly from Japan. Okay, interesting. So you kind of picked up you um, and you had a family at the time, everyone kind of just moved with you? And back then, we all, I only had a girlfriend, no wife. Okay, so less of a less of a sell, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> when it's instead of the and kids. They, when, when if if you know the Finnish winter, it's Hong Kong is a uh, much little nice. bit more sun and and yeah. uh, sun and warmth. Yep. And how big is how big was the company then, and how big is the company now? Kind of headcount. Oh, back then we only had one employee. Now we have fifteen. So 15 all in Hong Kong or? Philippines, Hong Kong, Japan. Okay. And is it customer service? Is it warehouse? What kind of, what's it look yeah, like? We have, in Hong Kong, we have like a photographer, office manager, warehouse people. In, in the Philippines, all the customer service, social media, copywriters in Japan, sourcing and buying. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Wow. So what have been some of the biggest challenges to doing this? Because I feel like... I feel like this is a very atypical e-commerce business. So it's going to have totally unique challenges. Yeah, like maybe the biggest challenges were like starting to gain traction in the US because it's once we once we got the first customers and like started like the the word started spreading in our niche, then it became more easier and we were able to benefit a lot from the early days of uh, influencers. Maybe that was the biggest challenge because we are in the beginning, our customer base was only in Northern Europe, basically. So it took a while to break into the US, the North American market, basically. Yeah. And um, it was almost before Facebook marketing, before Instagram. So it wasn't that easy to have the word, word out. Yeah. So how, how did you actually get into the U.S. market at that point? Was it all kind of just PPC or, but I'm guessing no one's searching for, it's tough, right? Because back in the day, it was all kind of, um, I'm trying to like Google product ads. Um, I forget what it was called at the time when you go that far back, but like people had to be kind of searching for your pro like cute Japanese products. And unless they were searching for that, you couldn't just find them like you can today. You can just show them on Facebook and or use an influencer. So how were you doing it originally? I think the biggest boost we got for, was from the influencers. At one point, we sent hundreds of basically sample products every month, like two or 300 every month. Back then, the, all the bloggers and YouTube YouTube stars were small and did not get, like um, expect any payment. They were happy to receive our products and do the reviews. So that was, that was uh, one of the biggest, like, early boosts we had and now it's more facebook and google and email everything combined okay so you're very early in kind of the influencer you were in the influencer world before it was they were called influencers 
Yeah, there, there has always been like these people who are fans of the Japanese pop culture, yeah. like anime, manga, and Japanese games. So we just we just have a small niche in that, which is the kawaii cute stuff that we sell. And there has, has that's also a niche that will work with any young girls or young women. Everything cute and pink, every girl at some point yeah. usually like usually likes those. So it's uh it's not uh, as limited as it sounds, but Hmm. Well, I guess so. On the flip side, what would you say is the biggest strength from setting up the business this way? In Hong Kong, it's it's everything is uh, the, everything is an advantage because no taxes, no, no import duties, no, oh, wow. no fees like that. And then um, labor force is very uh, very competitive. No, almost no personal taxes. Almost no profit or uh, profit or dividend taxes. Oh wow! It's, I didn't. And the yeah. shipping and the shipping is maybe the m- biggest benefit. Like we can offer free shipping to is any it... country in the world, and it's it's cheaper to ship from Hong Kong to Finland or from Hong Kong to US than it's from US to US or Finland to Finland. It's wait. I want to make sure I actually got what you said. It's cheaper to ship from Hong Kong to the US than US to US. Yeah, most in most situations it takes longer, but maybe two weeks, but uh, it's still cheaper. How? How? I mean, I because I know getting stuff from China, you know, you can do it, but just one-off shipments is always tough. But how is Hong Kong so much cheaper? We have all the same benefits as uh, China. So much volume. Well, now in, during the coronavirus, it's a bit different because the passenger flights have been uh, reduced, but. Before Corona, it was mostly passenger flights, so much volume. So the the, com, uh, the shipping companies are just competing um, each other. Yeah, keeping the price low. I think most folks don't actually know this. I guess on a couple weeks ago we were talking about this. It's probably worth mentioning where a lot of the air freight from um, China from Hong Kong isn't when you think of it, right? You're thinking it's on like a plane or like a freight plane and it's just a big plane big empty and they put pallets on it but it's really just in the bottom of a passenger flight like 90 percent of the freight right yeah yeah that's like and that's the majority of the international airmail is it's not cargo flights it's just passenger flights going to each of these countries yeah scheduled every day and now when there are no such flights that there have been delays but once again, Chinese and Hong Kong companies are very like uh, resourceful. So now there are cargo flights going almost daily to most major countries. Okay, yeah. So because I know at first it hit real hard, where there were no yeah. passenger flights, the cargo flights weren't ramped up yet, and just it was a there was just stuff sitting on the uh, you know pallets just sitting waiting to go, and there was just no flights to put them on. But they did get the cargo flights kind of going again. Yeah, yeah. Now, now things the U.S. and Europe are pretty much back to normal. Even actually, even better than before because now it's faster than before. Okay, but because there's still no passenger flights really coming from actually yeah. almost anywhere into the U.S. at this point. Yeah, very few. Okay, so shipping is cheaper from Hong Kong to the U.S. than U.S. to U.S. That's a good. That's a interesting one. Um, wow. And then I didn't know about the taxes either. So you're not. So there's no profit. There's no corporate taxes, profit taxes. It seems pretty. Uh, 
pretty business friendly to say the least. Uh, yeah, Hong Kong is super business friendly. Business friendly city. I think uh, this, the corporate tax is maximum fifteen percent. But if uh, if I remember correctly, if you make a profit of like a two hundred fifty thousand US, it's about eight percent. Oh wow! It's very high. Okay, so super cheap shipping, and then you're I'm guessing also just being close to sourcing right like yeah china oh. and the time zone is a really big plus like we can go to china uh just hop on a train and we'll be in guangzhou or shenzhen in one or two hours and then when we are on the same time zone it's it's so much easier to have everything work out efficiently and from china to hong kong there are no 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 duties and no no customs fees so it's it's like in it's like this, it, it would be in the same country. Everything works very quickly. Okay, very cool. Okay, so you are able, so if you want to go source products is, so you have the factories in, so you're going to factories in China, but then you're distributing from Hong Kong. So you just- Yes, correct. Okay, do they move it over on, I'm just kind of curious, truck, train? How do they get it there? Uh, for us, it's uh, trucks Okay. from China, yeah. So trucks come over, drop it in the DC, and then you're shipping out from Hong Kong via Air, air freight basically to everywhere in the world. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. I didn't, why do you think most people don't do this? Cause it sounds like, it sounds like there's a lot more pros than cons. Um, then again, you need to go to a new environment to start a business. It's not always so easy. And then now people are doing mostly Amazon maybe. So having your own warehouse in a city inside China basically is not an easy thing to start, but it's actually very easy to run. Why is it not easy to start? Well, there is a big culture difference if you come from Europe or US when you want to start a business in Asia. Maybe but, maybe people are more scared uh, that it's going to be difficult, but actually it's much more easier than starting up a business in the US. Really? Okay. This is you might talk some people into Moving, uh, moving to Hong Kong or China at this point. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Did you guys recently, I was just looking through your bio, um, start a subscription box business as well? Is that something I read correctly? Yeah, we have two stores and two subscription boxes. So we have one store for all the cute stuff we've been talking about and one store for candy and snacks, Japanese candy and snacks. And then we have a subscription box for both, which are... They work really well together. They support each other. So for the subscri subscribers, we can upsell the store and the other way around. And both like, um, we can also share the products. So basically if we have leftovers from the monthly subscriptions, we always can sell them in the store, makes it easier and no, no less risk with the uh, overstocks. That's when did you start that business? Oh, this the subscription box maybe six years ago. So we've had that about six years. I think some people don't don't know about that little trick as well, how they kind of support one another. Um, so you're basically, so you can almost, you so what you don't sell in one, you then are able to basically have a deeper discount in the other because you're buying so much of it each month. Yeah, for the subscriptions, we always have to, at least we want to do it so that every box is identical every month. So we have to buy a little bit extra every month and estimate so that we don't run out of products. But then we can always sell that product, overstock products from the uh, in the store. 
so it's basically no risk for uh, having leftovers. If you have only a subscription box, how do you get rid of the extra stuff? That's that's a problem for some companies. But we can still sell it in the store and then have campaigns and deals for those one or two hundred extra items we. And it all sounds like the ultimate upsell in the other direction, right? So you purchase a product and you're like, hey, if you like this product, maybe you'll want something like this every single month. Yes, we every customer that buys from the store is being hammered with the subscription box ads and emails. And what kind of, how relative to each other, how, what's the larger business? The, the, the store is much more profitable because we can, we can maintain a higher margin, but the subscription box has higher lifetime value. So when customer comes and buys, uh, subscribes, they stay with us like four, five, six months on average, depending on when they start. And then the store, they might have two or three orders, but the lifetime value with the subscription box is uh, better. So we can always like uh, spend a little bit more on the ads for the subscribers. Okay. So, and then just start taking some notes here. This is interesting. So then having the higher LTV on the subscription box, and if you're upselling them, then it makes the store more profitable too, I'm guessing, right? Because now you're saying, hey, um, let's say average card size is 100, right? Let's just round number, check out. So normally you can only spend so much on acquiring that customer, but if you know you're gonna upsell them after the fact to this product they're gonna have for six months, now you can spend double, triple on your ads at that point, it sounds like. Yeah, and the um, people who buy from the store are, maybe they want to sell certain products, like they wanna select the certain items they like, but the people who subscribe, they mostly, mostly subscribe for the experience. So it's not, about individual products for us. It's about the experience of unboxing and getting us like getting this cute box every month and sharing with your friends and maybe some people buy it for gifts. And it's a, a little bit different, like a target audience also. More general target audience when the store people actually need to want the product they buy. Yeah, you kind of see someone, you know, that's really into it, goes, goes to the store, buys a product, gets, you know, is wearing a shirt or kind of has a product their friend sees it and they're kind of into it. And then next birthday or holidays, they buy them the subscription, then it's a gift. It's something you could easily see that exact relationship. So if they're almost buying the same user, the same customer could be buying it for a friend at that point, right? Yeah, and then uh, the subscription business is also like, a, uh, I heard you talking about the Dollar Shave Club at one point, like it's a bit different for us because our products are not consumables. So we have to keep it entertaining. We have to keep it an, a really cool experience with all the leaflet and everything that comes in the box. So the customer actually has an, like a information about the products and backstories. If we have characters, we always tell the backstories of those characters. And so it's a, it's a bit different like a selling point because when we sell the products in the store, we have to actually sell the how to use this product or how this product is solving all the problems in, in your life. But the subscription, it's like a monthly, monthly, how do you say, indulgence or? Yeah, I'm thinking uh, it's more like, I've, I've seen before, um, like a whiskey club, like you got a, you know, a different sort of whiskey every month or like a cigar club different cigars come over. That It's like that kind of indulgence, um, not quite whiskey and cigars, but that's exactly where mine goes, right? Where it's just the thing that you don't need, but 
you're excited to get it every month. Like, you know, obviously don't need a cigar and you don't need, you know, like candy from Japan, but when you do get it, that is your indulgence. And then uh, we saw a huge spike now this uh, April, May, when all the, all our customers in the US were locked in their apartments. So the parents wanted to just keep their, maybe, maybe keep their kids happy and subscribe to our box. So there was like a, like a Christmas Black Friday type of, uh, spike for two months straight yeah i've had a we talked to a number of retailers that we work with here and um a few of them basically said you know that's everyone kind of how it's going and i've heard back from a few folks they're like yeah we're doing like black friday type numbers i'm like oh really this week they're like no every day like <laughs> just like every single day it's like black friday like that is amazing so yeah. so you're in that what was that no, I'm just, uh, I was just like asking, do they think it's going to last or how, how do, how does like the North American uh, sellers, are they ex expecting this, uh, this sales spike to last until Christmas or? I, so my opinion is there's two different things happening here. Um, and from just from talking to different people, this is kind of where I've come to at least this opinion. There's two waves we're hitting. The wave of people locked in their house and their, um, you know, buying it for the kid to keep them happy, that sort of thing. So that's like the big wave. But there's one under it that's actually the the larger thing happening, where a lot more users have been exposed to online, exposed to shopping, exposed. It just exposed this world of e-commerce that might as might have been a little foreign to them last year at this time. The older generation, or even just some folks buying the subscription boxes for the first time. And I think that wave is actually the more important one that. W that might never stop. Like, I think it's the new norm all of a sudden. So we're feeling the big pop, but I think the underlying current is really that it's going to move the needle, you know, forever at this point. I feel like when you once teach people how to do something new, they're going to stick with it. Yeah. Well, and getting over that fair, right? That description box that, you know, like, oh, this is actually kind of neat. And then they'll start exploring other description services, that sort of thing. Versus... You know, the first time you Dollar Shave Club, for example, just get out of that mode of, oh, I go to the store and I buy raises, you know, every every first week of the month. Um, and you've been doing that for 20 years. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, they can just mail them to me. Then you start, it, it changes something in your brain of going, what else can they just mail to me? And then you just realize like, oh, there's just a, a world of things here that I can just get. I don't have to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're finding too? Yeah, or? we are. I think it's going to be like that, like just exactly what you describe. Like some people have been still hesitant, but especially some parents have been hesitant to buy from uh, online for their kids. But now when they do it a few times, they see it's okay. Like they get used to Zoom meetings and they get used to all the other stuff they have been forced to get used to. So this is going to be one of those things, I think. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, 2020 is a very... Crazy year in some ways, but I think the e-commerce can be overall a good thing. So we've uh, we've had a few retails that were negatively affected. A big um, cohort in the middle that were not affected, but some that were super positive. So it's it's been interesting. One of the question too, actually, is so you've done this now for what is it twenty plus years? 
yeah, maybe 15, 16. Okay. 15, 16. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call this when when we started in e-commerce, it was so different. So basically what we have been doing for the past eight years, it's completely different. What we did uh 2006 or something. We had OS commerce and we like we fill our uh, shipping labels by hand and it was from from different from a different world almost. The the dark ages. Yeah, it was and no Facebook, no, no like social media and I don't know if we even had Google ads back then. If you were starting this business today, actually, what, what would you, what would you do different? What would you not do? How would you kind of position it? Um, would you have moved to Hong Kong? Like what would you do fast forward to 2020 if you were starting this? Maybe if I would want to start now an e-commerce business just from scratch, I would maybe start from content, like maybe set up a blog for, uh, for the niche we are in and then maybe start Amazon products first with our pro own product line because our strength has always been like the visual quality of photos and the graphic design we have in the products. So that's maybe better suited to selling our own products than selling other people's products. Okay. So you would start first, no, you would start in e-commerce, not in e-commerce, basically just starting kind of content, getting a following almost before yeah I, I would build a platform first and that's actually what we're doing next we are we are uh, starting a blog and we are we are starting to test out some amazon products but if i would start now i would not set up a warehouse and invest hundreds of thousands in stock i would invest that money into creating a platform and uh, our own product line in amazon and other other uh, marketplaces and why is that because is it to base is the goal at that point to become your own influencer and you, you are the influencer at that point? Uh, I think it would be important because now we have the audience. We have the email subscribers and the, like the fans on social media. But if we would start from scratch, we would first need to build that before actually launching any products. Okay. So you basically start kind of the content business or even it sounds like selling other people's products, but just get something, get an audience first. Yeah. Build that up and then leverage that audience to then sell Whatever, basically whatever, whatever you're selling of other folks, sell it now to other folks that way. Yeah. And maybe, maybe also like, um, if you want to launch something in Amazon 2020, you need to have some kind of audience you sell to, to make the initial launch big enough to stick. I, I, I'm not an expert on that field, but like, that's what I've been hearing. To basically, if you want to get a product on Amazon to basically be able to hit your email list and say, Hey, come buy our listing and to kind of juice up the, the sales initially? Yeah, now when we have uh, something like 300, 400,000 subscribers on the newsletters, it's going to be much easier to launch a uh, product on Amazon than just if we would be a no-name brand no, with no followers. Yeah, I think everyone that starts email content basically has a following. The biggest thing when I talk to them is they wish they did it earlier on because you see the snowball effect. Yeah, yeah, correct. And with everything right at first is you're doing it and there's really no one coming to the blog. There's no one, you know, you're emailing 10 people and it feels a little like, what's the point? But like you said, as it grows, now you have an adorable asset, right? Something that you can reuse, something that as long as you treat everyone right, they're going to treat you right. And you're not just, you know, you're not just selling them whatever, but you're actually curating your products and you're saying, here are some things I like. You're using your kind of creative eye and saying, hey, you know, check these out. These are actually pretty interesting. And if, your if that resonates with the audience, then it's going to grow over time. 
Yes, and uh, with the same thing with like designing a product for ourselves, like it's going to be so much easier if you have have some kind of audience you can ask ask for advice like in, instead of coming up with your with your own, own like uh, assumptions and spending money on the testing so you so then you use your internal audience to basically um float ideas right on this color yeah, this basically basically a b test like if would this even sell if we, if, we, if we make this product yeah very cool and what do you, you reach them via email and kind of just say, here's what we're thinking, these products, what are, you, what are your thoughts? And folks kind of reply back. Yeah, and then we, we can have a, a pop-up on the, on, the, on, the, on the site, which is like just a simple question, click the image you like more, or we use Gleam for that. So there are many options. We can just quickly test what would the basic, what would the customer or potential customer be interested in? Very cool. All right. I think that... Uh... That's helpful. And uh, I think probably a good place to wrap it up though. But if people want to kind of check out the site, if they want to check out the description box business, um, I'll put links in the show notes, but where can it, where's some of the best place for folks to find you? Uh, our store is blippo.com, B-L-I-P-P-O.com. And the Kawaii box is kawaiibox.com, K-A-W-A-I-I-box.com. Awesome. I will link to the show notes. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on today. Super interesting. Thank you so much for having me.